There's a lot of technical jargon in churches. When you go to seminary, you learn even, even more, more jargon, words like eschatology and, and pericope and, and dispensationalism, words that are rarely used in an HEB checkout line, even with, even with social distancing. Even if you don't go to seminary, there are lots of words in churches that are not used elsewhere. And if you grow up in a church or have been a part of a church for a long time, these words seem normal to you. But if you haven't been inside a church in a few decades, or really ever, they do not. For instance, narthex. How many people use narthex outside of a church? Provenient. The word. When, when people who aren't in a church or around a church say the word, they aren't talking about a book. In the United Methodist Church, a, a word, a phrase that has a lot of weight is Emmaus. Emmaus refers to a road near Jerusalem, a town on the road. The road Jesus walked in the gospel message for today. Emmaus also refers to a retreat that has been going on since 1981, a retreat weekend that has transformed countless lives and transformed the de denomination in many ways. Many folks at Berkeley have gone on walks to Emmaus, or walks for short. Have you been on a walk that means something different in a Methodist church than it does outside? It's like, yes, I've been on a walk. I went on a walk yesterday. No, a walk. I would guess a good percentage of leadership at Methodist churches in general have gone on walks. Emmaus was explicitly based on the Curcio movement that came out of Spain in the 1940s and then spread around the world, and the history of Curcio is fascinating. But we have to go back before it started to the Spanish Civil War. The struggle written about by, by Orwell and Hemingway, the sides of the, the Republicans on one side and Franco on, on the other, and, and it was a divided country. Franco was very Catholic, and he supported the church very much. He supported the church as an authority, even more so than the body of Christ. But there were atrocities on, on both sides. Priests and nuns were killed by the Republicans, and women or chi and children were killed by Franco's forces. It was a nasty affair all around. In the aftermath, there were regions of Spain that had been loyal to Franco the whole time. In these places, the church maintained a similar presence as it had before the war. In other Formerly Republican regions, though, the, the church struggled. Many people saw the church as agents of oppression and the cause of harm for their loved ones. They heard the bells on Sunday and they had flashbacks. They had PTSD of Franco's forces coming through the town, rounding people up. It was at that time after the Civil War on the island of Majorca during a time when the rest of the world was fighting in the 1940s, that Curcio was born. Curcio means a short course or a little course. It's a short course of faith. But it is a, it is a response to the issue of how do you share the love of Jesus when many people see Jesus as an oppressor? So they tried. They tried a short course a short course to remind people of who God is. And for many, to share anew who God is and God's love for you.
They tested it and expanded it and then shared it to the world. The first Curcio in the United States was actually in Waco in 1956, I believe. But there wasn't a Curcio in English until 1961, and that was in San Angelo. It was at first in Spanish. It was a Spanish language program that spread around the world. And then in the 70s, it began to expand into other denominations and the development of, of the walks to Emmaus emerged. Faith is not very proactive or cutting edge. And this is, this is not a bad thing. Everything that's cutting edge is not necessarily great. It often falls off that edge. Faith is retrospective. Faith is the moment those disciples realize it was Jesus with them the whole time. Their life, though, had already begun to change. What does it take to change a life? A few things. The first is some sort of realization that a life can or should be changed. The two are walking along the road. They are stunned about what happened and are talking about it on the road from Jerusalem to the small community of Emmaus. They had expected great things of Jesus. They said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They hoped. They had not given up. They hoped. And then they shared about the rumors of the empty tomb. They hoped, but they did not believe. And Jesus tells them this. His, his language seems harsh at first hearing Luke says, then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. The Greek itself is, is o oneate kai brades, which, which we all know, oneate doesn't mean foolish. We all know that, right? Oneate doesn't mean, mean foolish. Moros or moron means foolish. That's a pretty easy one, a cognate in English. And so, um, ho moron, ho moroi, like that's... That's when you're talking about someone being foolish. Anoate is someone who doesn't understand, like someone who doesn't understand how to fix a car. Like, oh, you who doesn't understand, you don't know the parts. Someone who doesn't understand how the computer works, how the CPU functions and all the different things. Like, I am, I am anoyatoy about a computer because I can, I can talk to you about the parts, but how the circuits actually function, I couldn't, I can't, I can't tell you. Jesus doesn't call them fools or morons, but people who don't understand. And then, like the good teacher he is, Jesus explains it all to them. Jesus goes through all of sacred history, which seems amazing. I think it is fairly stunning that we don't have this history written down. That is, these two disciples didn't write down what Jesus said to them. The scriptures are not written by the pen of Jesus or the pen of God, but through the Holy Spirit. But here we have Jesus explaining it all. Jesus answering it all from Moses and the prophets all through explaining how he was present before in those witnesses. Yet that then was not enough. They didn't realize who was talking to them, even when he explained all of human and divine history to them. Perfect knowledge does not beget perfect behavior. Sometimes that is how we think about, about faith and life. If only people knew what was good, if only people knew the right thing to do, they would do it. If only people had enough information, they would realize X, Y, and Z. If only people had all the information I had, they would agree with exactly everything that I believe in. 
If only people knew the good, they would do the good. This has been debated for thousands of years, at least since Plato. Some Christians think of evangelism this way. If only I get the right information to my neighbor, they will believe. If only I catch them at the right time, they're going to believe and I share the right thing. Or for some of us with our children, if only I tell my kids the right things about Jesus, they're going to turn out well. But Jesus himself could not convince folks who he was by explaining everything. Explanations don't go far enough. Humans have an amazing ability to not learn. No matter where we are in the world, no matter where we are in life, we can decide that this information is not for us, or, as is most often the case, that whatever new information we have is only utilized to confirm our priors, to confirm what we already thought before. You see this often, especially with the pandemic, that most people have, or I wouldn't say most, a lot of people have seen what has happened with the pandemic in our country, in our state, and instead of changing their minds about how government should function or the state should function or, or people or humans, all they've done is like, this confirms everything I thought on January 1st, 2020. All of this is further evidence for my side of the divide. Amazing, humans have this amazing ability, no matter what, we can, we can take information and not learn. What opens their eyes, though, is not the information, is not, is not the perfect teacher sharing all the knowledge. It is breaking bread with Jesus. What opens their eyes is the Holy Spirit. Conversion does not happen because of the right information, but because of an action of God in someone's life. This gets us back to Curcio and how to share Jesus after a civil war. The point of Curcio and the point of a walk to Emmaus is not to give someone a lot of information. There are talks and, and probably new stuff for everybody, but perfect information does not make one a Christian. With Curcio, the issue is not knowledge, but experience. Many people had knowledge of Jesus and the church, but they had experience of something dramatically different with the church in the years of war and depression. Most people in America, most people around the world have an idea in their head of what a Christian is. There are no blank slates. Many people have not been inside churches, but they think they know what a Christian is. The nuns, the category of no religious affiliation is, is large and growing. We can see in this study, and the top, is, um, the top line is Protestantism. This is from 2007 until 2019. In the sliding, um, the decline of Protestantism. The second line is Catholics. And the third are nuns, going up from, from 12% up to 17%. Increasing at a much higher rate. Than, than atheists or agnostics, the nuns with no religious affiliation. It could be growing even more in the midst of this pandemic. People who realize, wait a minute, I don't have to get up and go anywhere. I don't, I don't need that in my life. Nuns stay away from church because of what they think about church and Christians and what they think about themselves. Christians are either wrong or irrelevant, or wrongly irrelevant. But the wrongness that is judged most often comes from experience rather than a total absence of knowledge. 
I can tell you a lot about what there is to know about the life of Jesus, about evidence for his life, of the miracles, of the resurrection. I can answer a lot of questions, or at least I know where to look to if you ask a question that I don't know, but answering those questions does not lead causally to belief. Only God can change the human heart. I cannot change your heart. Your best friend cannot change your heart. Your spouse or your parent or your sibling cannot change your heart. But this does not leave us helpless. Instead, what is left for us to do is prepare the soil. Jesus uses a lot of farming metaphors in his teachings. I don't, I don't know about you, but I have been spending a lot more time in our garden since the schools have closed. We mostly grow herbs because we can start cooking with them on, on day one. And they, they're nice and beautiful and green and a little like um, fresh bar, uh, basil and, and parsley just sounds amazing. You can top it off on anything. It's, it's wonderful. It tastes amazing. But you have to prepare the soil if you expect to grow anything. Even like a hardcore organic no-dig method brings in other material. If I tried to grow anything on a patch of dirt in my front yard that is baked and solid Austin clay, I mean, it's basically the path that Jesus talks about, the birds eating seeds. In fact, let's read that parable from Luke 8. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path it was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. Jesus goes on to explain the parable, one of the rare times that he does, and say how the good news is the seed and that there are people on the path, on the rocky ground, on thorns and in good soil. The heart of the matter for us and for anyone who has ever gardened is that soil can change. Soil is not eternal. Soil is living. You can raise beds. You can add compost and manure. You can water. You can till. You can pull out thorns and weeds. You can redirect roads. And this, I feel, is the task of Cursillo, of, of walks to Emmaus, of any attempt to share the faith. There are thorn bushes in people's lives. There are rocky areas. There are spots where other people have walked all over them, so much that it has become basically a path where little can grow. Good soil is made. Jungles and forests and fields that go well, grow well do so because of the symbiotic ecosystem that feeds it. It is about the animals and the insects and the worms and the sun and the water and the people. And most often, humans make soil worse, right? We produce pollution. We create man-made erosion, asphalt, buildings. We displace wildlife so the, the wildlife isn't able to, to feed in the area and to drop waste in the area. So much humans do makes soil worse. And I think that metaphor works for faith as well. So much of what Christians do make it harder for some people to believe. So much of what Christians do in the name of Christ tramples the soil, washes out the soil, builds brambles on the soil. But as usual, Jesus shows us the way. We walk 
with people. We ask questions. We share. A walk to Emmaus is a journey with others. I'm not talking about the official retreat from Upper Room. I'm talking about a journey with others. You are not alone. Now, the official walk to Emmaus is also a journey. You are not alone. You are sponsored by someone in order to go on one. You are reminded the whole way that you are not alone. The point is to till the soil, to move the path, to help pull out the brambles so that the seed of God's love can be planted in good soil. But God is working on everyone as well. We don't act alone. So what about today? There are no walks to Emmaus going on with social distancing, not a lot of walking with people other than those of your own household. I think God is calling us to first take that walk with those closest to us. Take that walk with those whom we can. Take that walk on the phone. As well, we should consider how the soil of our own soul is doing. Do we feel trampled? Do we feel dried out? Do we feel pecked at or surrounded by swords, thorns on all sides? Thorns that feel like swords. We can take some time to build new habits. New habits to till the soil of our own hearts. What is a new habit of prayer that you could start? One thing that is easy to do and to start with is to pick a person or a few people in your life and pray for them every day this week. And a simple prayer, dear God, be with them. Amen. Just to say those simple words. The words of prayer don't have to be like beautiful and uplifting. Um, they have to be, you know, the point of prayer is to connect with God. The fact that you do it, that you say those simple words is already transforming you. Jesus is here for you. Jesus is already there with you. You are ready. You are already on the journey. In a few minutes, we're going to have a time for, for our love feast. And I hope you all are participating with this. I am as too. And in, in just to take a moment to share a piece of food or to say a blessing to someone in your life if you are alone at this time. It doesn't have to be something, something spectacular. The beautiful thing is the sharing. When, when they took a bite of the food, their eyes were opened up. God uses that community to transform people's lives. Take a bite. Open your eyes. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are meant for love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.